Morning, everybody. Uh, good morning to those of you who are online. Just want to encourage you to make use of the comment section or the chat to the side if you're on the uh, live stream website to greet one another, give each other some shout outs. You can make, say encouraging things to me only. Uh, <laughs> and uh, welcome to those of you who are in the church house this morning. Is everybody feeling well? If you're not feeling well, I don't want to know about it. I, I don't, I don't, <laughs> I'm not going to say you can't come to church, of course, uh, but hey, uh, this is a weird time. I like the size of the room right now because um, I, think, I think we're shooting for like 300 and some, right, which is the size of that the service of Crossroads was when I first started coming to this church. And so it's the little things that count right now to just sort of make you feel uh, warm and fuzzy and, you know, back to a really formative time for me, so uh, I'm looking out and just loving seeing all of your faces and seeing this size. Uh, it's a different time back in the gymnasium at Walker Charter. We have a building now, beautiful downtown campus here that we can do things in that we could have never done in the spaces that we were before, like, I don't know if you know this, there's a blood drive happening upstairs right now for people who need blood. If you feel right now like you need to or you'd like to give back or donate and you've always wanted an opportunity but you're never in the right place at the right time, you are in the right place at the right time. We need, uh, they're, they're saying they, they could take five people right now to go upstairs into the, uh, the room up at the top of the stairs there to give blood. And we asked them nicely, they, they, they'll, they'll stream the church service on the TV up there so that you're able to uh, still be a part of what's going on. And so just want to encourage you to get up and go up there and give back. Because when our city's asking for some good blood, Crossroads is going to respond with the best blood they've ever had. Good Christian blood. Amen. I uh, what, what, Redeemed blood. Thank you. I was up there earlier and... Last time I tried to give blood, it was rejected. They poked in, into me and pure tater tots and hater, uh, hot dogs from Blue Dog Tavern came out. I'm not joking. This is a life insurance thing, and they came back. I, I didn't know that I was supposed to not eat prior to the test. Uh, not This isn't the same kind, but they got the results back and were like, either you're going to die or uh, soon. <laughs> Or we're going to have to redo this. This is bad. This is just bad. Okay, they wouldn't put my blood in their worst enemy. Okay, announcement. Is that a good announcement? Okay, so go give your blood and uh, help some people in our world and in our city that don't have enough blood right now. Um, and put that in the bank for them. Like to uh, invite you to turn your Bibles to Romans chapter 8. A chapter of the Bible that not many people are familiar with. I don't know how I keep getting so lucky uh, getting the, the, the famous passages of Scripture. I think it was just a couple months ago. I was given John 3.16. I'm the luckiest person. I mean, sometimes there's a dissonance with, you know, how do, what are you going to say? But I'm always excited to uh, enter into this stuff. And the thing about Romans 8, it is a, it is a place that a lot of us uh, find as sacred and holy ground. It is a place where a lot of us uh, go to to, to just be ministered to. Um, and as I was kind of thinking about Romans in the last week or so, I was asking several people, like, what do you know about Romans? And 
a lot of verses came up, a lot of verses from Romans, which I also can, uh, same for me. I mean, you start getting a lot of 118s, or, or I mean, not 18, good grief, 116 and 17, well, you know, some uh, 323s, some chapter 8 for sure, maybe a couple 12s, you know, and, and it, it's this really inspiring book full of propositions, and I think for me, I always just sort of viewed Romans as a standalone document. This saying that uh, is just sort of arbitrarily true, that is just Paul, it's like the crown jewel of his ministry. He just couldn't wait to finally say it right in one thing, one place. This is where all your questions are going to be answered. And I think that that might have been a result of me not reading the entire book of Romans ever as, as when I was growing up. I mean, it's only 16 chapters, but I don't know if this is your experience. I'd read some and you'd get those verses that you had to memorize, you know, that the sword drill verses that are kind of famous. And, and then you start seeing some big words. I don't know what a propitiation, I, I don't know. And then you start to get into chapters like seven and you're like, is this a riddle? Uh, I, I do not do what I want to do. I don't do. And I'm like, I do not follow you right now. And then uh, you've got eight. And you get to eight. And you're like, it can't get any better than this. Why would I continue on? Highlight some of it. Underline some of it. And then we'll just call it good. Then I realized at one point, do you know, chapter 16, the Apostle Paul speaks directly to 27 people by name. Not only that, but at least three times he references a house church or people of their household or groups that are gathering. He is speaking to a network of churches in Rome. Now, just does that change the tenor or the tone or the direction of this letter for you at all? To know that it is actually written to a group of people who have a context, who have issues, who have things that they're sorting out, just like every other letter that he wrote. So rephrasing my original question, we know about Romans. Well, what do you know about the world in, in which the book of Romans was written? So I thought just if you'd humor me for a second before I read, I would, uh, I'd like to remind you of some just historical facts and then make some uh, conclusions uh, really quick before we read. To remind you, uh, 10 or so years as the gospel is starting to just get out into the world, it has reached Rome. There have been Christians, there are Jewish people primarily who are learning about Jesus, putting their faith into him, and this is happening in the synagogues. Of course, there are Gentile people that are coming along with this as well, that are learning and being a part of this. In 41 AD, Emperor Claudius, he made it illegal to go to the synagogue to worship God in that way for the Jewish people. This pushed it into the houses. This became now a movement of house churches and a network in this city where people started to build. Uh, and what are you going to do on the Sabbath? Instead of going to the synagogue, of course, you're going to have your meal. You're going to have your Shabbat dinner. You're going to be able to gather around a feast and a table. They're starting to do, they, this happened for years, okay? Six, seven years of this is going on in Rome. Until, as the... Uh, Roman historian Suetonius says uh, 
there was a group of dis, there was disturbances in Rome because of someone named Christus. And that's one letter different than the word Christ, Christus. But scholars are quick to tell you this has nothing to do with Christian, uh, which maybe it isn't. Maybe there is, but nobody knows what a Christus is. And so uh, maybe uh, the Christians have some, some dis- dis- disagreements going on in the, in the church here, but you didn't hear it from me. If anybody asks, you just tell them someone named Don Mike told you that. <laughs> and uh, so there's a disturbance going on, and for various reasons... This is the big drama. Emperor Claudius bans all Jews from the city of Rome. This exile, expelling them from Rome, becomes really uh, a turning point for many of the people that you even know some of the names. Two people that, were, uh, that experienced this was Aquila and Priscilla. They had to pack up their business, and they had to pack up their life and their family and move to a different place to make ends meet. They were expelled from the city. It's how Paul actually meets them. They are actually referenced in chapter 16. What happens is, after a period of five or six years, Claudius dies, and the young 17-year-old Nero becomes emperor. He then forgets about the ban, stimulates the economy, welcomes in the Jews back to Rome, and people start coming back. Okay. So this is where I'm going to start making some conclusions. What happens after you're destabilized, you're uh, you're, you're kicked out of your city, you come back, and you're trying to find some normalcy? Most people would revert to things like their heritage. A lot of people would try and double down on, you know, their race or their family practices, especially religious traditions. It's tempting, you know, in destabilizing times to try and control your environment in some way. Imagine you're a Jewish Christian and you're trying to come back to that house church for the first time. And you're there on Saturday knocking on the door and nobody's there. Somebody's around. They don't meet on Saturdays anymore. They're changing to Sundays. And then you're like scratching your head like, well, okay, this is kind of a really important thing for our faith for like thousands of years. Why would they change the day? That seems kind of weird. And so I better show up tomorrow and and sort this out. Imagine you knock on the door. The next day the door is opened by a man greeting you with a kiss, very excited to see you, but holding in his hand a bratwurst uh, pork sausage. And on the table is a stack of BLT sandwiches. You're like, what is going on? Is this even the same religion? We're not supposed to eat this stuff. This is the wrong day. What are you wearing the I Heart Nero t-shirt for right now? What are you doing? And, and so this then started to create in that group some uh, strong dissonance and disunity because of what they needed. Paul in chapter 14 and 15 starts to lay out this context very clearly. The one who returns to Rome, he calls the weaker brother. The one who's weak in faith. Not weak in physical strength. They're weak socially. They're weak economically. They don't have the momentum. And they're weak right now because they're reverting back to practices and things that make them feel like they have control that they shouldn't have. It's tempting to become a legalist. To to start to make sure that we have ourselves covered. That we can say, I mean, if you were to identify with them at all in a destabilized time of our own, 
As long as I'm doing the right thing by me, I am okay. Chapter 15, Paul actually identifies with the other group that he sets up called the strong, the we who are strong. And he starts to say things like, we, you know, we don't have the same kind of beliefs about how to eat right now and, and the days of the week and what one matters more than the other. But we have an obligation to this person to meet them where they're at because we have the momentum right now in this social environment. We have some power. We have some uh, ability to meet them where they're at and be compassionate. He is speaking into a church that is divided. So put yourself in his shoes. What would you do? Knowing the words of Jesus when he says, a house divided against itself can't stand. You shouldn't settle for that. What would you say? What would you do to push and pull one or the other, one group over the other and find ways to uh, uh, anticipate the questions that they would have and ask yourself some rhetorical questions, you know, just to get the conversation flowing? What would you start to set up as a document to uh, put forth in this church in hopes that they would come together as a family, as one church with one Savior and one gospel for the sake of the kingdom of God in Rome? What comes out of this is... Romans, let some of the underpinning context and culture start to affect the nuance of how you read this letter. If anything, it should help us at least start to see through a time, how God's word can engage in a time of polarization or a time where there's division in a church. If that ever may happen to be an experience for some of you. With that being said, I would like to read to you from Romans chapter 8. So please stand with me for the reading. And I'm going to start with uh, verse 14. Those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. You hear amen. The spirit that you receive does not make you slaves. The spirit that you have received has not made you a slave so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. By him we cry out, Abba, Father. The spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if indeed we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God, co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his suffering in order that we may also share in his glory. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed in us. The creation awaits an eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. The creation was subject to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from the bondage to decay and brought into freedom and glory of the children of God. We know the whole creation has been groaning, is in the pains of childbirth right up into the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we eagerly await our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope, we were saved. But hope that is seen is no hope, but who hopes for what they already have? If we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait patiently. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. 
We do not know what we ought to pray for. The Spirit intercedes for us with wordless groans. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. Is this ministering to anybody right now? I could keep going. All right, but I won't. Okay, so I'm going to leave some meat on the bone for you this week. I know it's taking everything in me to not. So please, this is the word of God. Have a seat. This is a contagious chapter of the Bible, okay. I'd like to do what I call a running commentary of making some thoughts and comments as we flow through that section. And I'd like to just give you a title today of glory. I'm going to talk about glory, groaning, and the Holy Spirit at work in that. So this summer we've been focusing on uh, the work and the ministry of the Holy Spirit And I want to encourage you to not think of the Holy Spirit arbitrary way right now of just dissecting what what the Godhead is or whatever, but to taste and see. To yourself, ask the Holy Spirit to do his work in your heart and in your life right now as we talk about him, as we learn about him. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. And let's use this as something that encourages us this, this week in such a tumultuous time that we live. So the Apostle Paul is in, uh, writing into, as I commented before, a disunified situation. And instead of creating some sort of police situation with them where he has to make new rules, and instead of uh, being overly an overbearing leader here, Paul actually writes in a way that builds up both sides, but right here at the center of his letter as this chapter that peels back all of the layers and actually exposes a question of what's actually your true identity. It's a good question for any of us to ask ourselves. If you had to answer that, what is the most fundamental way that you identify? I mean, what what is your identity? Because it's tricky and, and, and tempting to place our identity in things that are shallow, in things that are frail and fragile. Every day, there's a temptation, a new temptation for you to to attach who you are to something that can be taken from you. So ask yourself, I mean, how do you even figure that out? I mean, like, take me for example. There are things that I could put my identity in, and I I think to to test whether or not it is, you can either wait until something gets taken from you, or you can hypothetically t- take it from yourself or whatever, right? I mean, so right now, one of the most, like, obvious things about my life is that I am into music. I got a guitar when I was in the third grade, and I'm pretty sure that unless I was, like, on a trip somewhere or on vacation and didn't have one, it's almost every day something that I do. It's a big part of me. And what would happen? This is the question. What would happen? If I was to, for some reason, lose my ability to play, lose my hands or something like that. How devastating would I be? Or devastated would it be to me? And you go around and you start to ask yourselves, well, who would I be if I didn't have this career? Or who would I be if I didn't have this person, my family or my home or my friends? The things that we are emphasizing on, we can overemphasize. The looks that we have, the status that we have, 
When push comes to shove, all the way down to the bottom of your soul, what is your identity? We sang something earlier today that I think ought to be the most important piece of our identity as a Christian. When we said the words, I am a child of God. Outside of that song, have you ever said that? Maybe you should say it right now under your breath. I am a child of God. If there's resistance in you right now, why? Where does it come from? If you've said that in your mind or in your heart right now and you started to feel like you just got ministered to, then we're starting to know that there's some work that needs to be done in our identities. Because this is a main... This ought to be the place that is the most fundamental part of our identity. And, and, and it's not on you alone to manufacture this. It's very uh, important for us to know that this is something that the Holy Spirit's going to do as his ministry for you. Remember what verse 14 said. Those who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God. I remember the first time I read that verse when I was a kid, and I instantly got an insecurity which said, like, how do you know you're being led by the Spirit of God? What if you think you're being led by the Spirit of God, but you're not really? And in the end, you find out that you weren't. You weren't really a child of God, were you? Yes, I've struggled with imposter syndrome my entire life. Um, well, let me ask you, if that's you right now, and you have a doubt of whether or not you are a child of God or led by the Spirit of God, then let me ask you, where does the Spirit lead then? That's how you can know. Where, if you're following the Spirit, is, is where is the Spirit leading? Look on into verse 15. For the Spirit that you have received <coughs> it's not leading you into slavery. <coughs> it's not leading you towards fear. There are things in this world that will lead people into slavery and into fear. But the Holy Spirit at work in your life wants to lead you into a place of freedom. Wants to lead you away from the things that we shackle ourselves to. That we claim, I need this in order to survive. I need this in order to be valuable. I need this in order to have uh, my true identity. He'll, every day, little by little, continue to work on you to say, I'm going to set you free from the need for that validation. I'm going to set you free and put you on a place that is not shallow. That is not fickle. That is strong. Your life is hidden in Christ. Build on this foundation. This is the most important part of your identity, that you are a child of God. The Holy Spirit is testifying. There's legal language in these verses here. He is a, he's testifying that you are adopted. as He's like a witness to God signing the papers for your adoption, saying, I am going to take responsibility for this child. I'm going to sign your name on my will. Your name's going to be there. You are an heir and a co-heir with Christ, a full-fledged member of the royal family and the kingdom of God. This is your identity. And if you don't feel it, ask the Holy Spirit to do the work in me. Do what you promised to do because he will never get tired of telling you this truth. It's what he does. He'll never get tired of leading you in this direction if you stray away or if you turn to the left or the right. He will do this for you. He will not leave you as an orphan. He'll testify with your spirit. He'll coach you up. 
cheer you on and tell you to say things like, Abba, Father. When you read 15, do you ever like wonder, why am I looking at an Aramaic word? Why, why did you see that in 15? Abba, what are we talking about? Mama Mia. <laughs> Take a chance on me. Um, Abba, this is a transliteration, right? We know what this is. This is using our letters to make up a different language word, okay? Paul did this in the Greek text. Alpha, beta, beta, alpha. Why didn't he translate it to just father? That's the next, he knows the next word is father. You ever wonder about this? We read it last week too in Galatians. It's in all four gospels. Abba, is this a magic word? Is this something that like real Christians pray, you know, when you get to like the, the real prayer meetings? And I, I don't use it, okay? It's not my word. I don't, I don't. So uh, uh, let me explain my idea here for this. I uh, came across some writings on this by a guy named Dr. Randall Booth, a world-renowned uh, Semitic language expert. He suggests that there are three languages hidden in the heart of the uh, worldview of a person in the first century, uh, a Jewish person in the first century. Number one, of course you speak Greek. This is the language of the empire. But at home, you speak Aramaic. This is what you and your siblings taught. This is what you dream in. This is, what this is your slang. At church, it's Hebrew. The, the scrolls are in Hebrew. We're not changing the scrolls. It's a holy language. Our blessings are in Hebrew. Our prayers are in Hebrew. If you know any Jewish prayers, they oftentimes start off the same way. Baruch, Atah, Adonai, Eloheinu, Melech. Okay, we bless you, Lord God, King. This is a very formal address. Well, let me tell you something. When we read the life of Jesus, something changed. Every single prayer that we have recorded from Jesus, as well as the one that he taught us to pray, does not start off with king of the universe. He starts off with the word father. Taking a giant, nobody prays to the father in his day. Nobody starts off a prayer in their own language, their, their own common tongue. But in all four gospels, at the garden of Gethsemane, when Jesus is in a vulnerable situation, he kneels to the ground and he cries out the word, Abba. <laughs> Some of you might have experienced this. Um, back in January, I was doing the message that day, and I was reading. Uh, I was getting ready to read. And we were, remember, we were doing three different services at that time. And um, I, my daughter was six months old by then, and her birthday is this week, actually. And they had come to the church. So I didn't know. When's my wife coming to the church? Is she going to have the first one? I don't. I'm just doing my thing. They may stay home. I don't know. Just for context here. I'm reading. Everybody's standing. It's the Bible verse time. It's the most important time to me to read this verse. And I hear a baby cry. And in one second, I stopped. I had to. I stopped because I knew that's my baby. And some of you might remember, I said, that is my baby, and I love you. 
as she cried and was taken out into not bothering everyone else. Abba is not a magic word. Abba is permission. It's permission for you and I to speak to God in a way that is natural, in a way that a baby would cry out to their father. And your father in heaven, the second he hears your voice, he knows. And he turns and responds. This is your identity. According to this chapter, this is your glory. This is glory that is continually being revealed in you. Hebrews chapter 2 puts it like this. Jesus, in bringing many sons to glory, that God, through whom and for whom all things exist, saw it fit that to make the author and perfecter of their faith perfect through suffering so that the one who makes people holy and those who are being made holy are from the same family. He is not ashamed to call you his brother. You have a loyal family. You have a father who is looking at you, listening to you, cry out to him. You have a uh, spirit in you that's testifying that you are a part of this family. And you have a brother and a leader and a champion who is not embarrassed but it, and is not ashamed of you, but is more than willing to look at you and say, that's my sibling. This is your glory. This is your identity. This is important for us to talk about week after week because from this place your theology is lived. From this place you are either walking towards more and more freedom in this because you look in the mirror and you see yourself as a part of the royal family which gives you all kinds of permission, gives you all kinds of grace and blessing and that you are able to take that into the world that you live in. If your identity is being placed on other things that have you uh, walking more and more into a narrow space and in a place of slavery, then your theology will also flow from that as well. Your lifestyle will flow from that as well. The way you treat other people will continue to be petty and divisive. If this isn't a fluency, if you're not fluent in speaking of yourself in a way of saying, I am a child of God, then I would suggest you take a scalpel to your identity this week and in next week and as many weeks as it takes and start to cut away the things that have you uh, that have you in slavery the things that tell you the opposite about yourself and you're not alone in it the Holy Spirit is going to take you by the hand and lead you through that if you ask him so ask him tell me who I am teach me how to love me the way you love me this will then be a foundation for you to start to interact with people who are different. Interact with people in the world. People who disagree with you. Which is why I want to leave talking about groaning or glory and start talking about groaning. I don't know about you. But I could talk to myself about this stuff all day. Looking in the mirror and saying, Dan, you are a child of God. Can you believe it? You're a heir. You are a, you're a part of the royal family. I love that conversation. But wouldn't you know it, as soon as I start hanging out with my friends, they do not treat me like I am the child of God or the son of, I mean, I mean if they only knew, it's a prince and the pauper situation. If they only knew who I really am, they wouldn't tease me so much or whatever. <coughs> Sorry, my throat's dry. 
if you were to go out into the world and they were to treat you and not see it, how do you interact with them? Well, as you start to look through this chapter and that I read, they're woven throughout all kinds of words like suffering with Christ, groaning, weakness, pains, frustration, decay. This is all a part of what we call a now but not yet situation where there is a truth that is inside of you that is growing, but the more it grows... He talks about it like, like a pregnancy. The more difficult it is to, uh, to experience, the more pain before what is actually inside is being realized. You will have pain in this world. And I'm glad that this is in here because it does affirm my situ- a lot of our uh, situations. But here's the thing. It's tempting to force a blind world, a world that is blind to who you really are for whatever reason. To de- it's, it's easy to demand that they treat you the way that you desire to be treated. It's easy to slip into what I call uh, the lifestyle of the empire. If we're in the lifestyle of the empire and I'm a prince or I'm a, a part of the royal family, then I am going to demand kiss the sun lest he be angry with you. I am going to demand that you would treat me in a way that I, sh- that I sh- deserve to be treated. I'm going to demand that you uh, submit to my authority. This is the way of Rome. In the Roman world, yes, glory on the outside. Yes, I win my arguments. I make you surrender. I fight you. I will conquer you. And if you... Uh, just push me far enough, I will cut you off. I'll crucify you. I will put you out. This lifestyle is not the lifestyle that we have been called to as sons of God. As you'll continue to read in Romans 8, that, that, that we are always being conformed to the image of Christ so that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. We have been called to pick up our cross and to follow Christ and die daily for a world. Look at what they did for him. They did not recognize who he was. But even so, he recognized the world is a a world worth uh, his love. And he has put on us his reputation to take the gospel out into our world and into our spheres of influence and start to tell people, even if they don't deserve it, that they are loved and they are somebody who you can look at and say, you're not my enemy, you're my brother. Somebody that you can look at and say, you are worth somebody making a sacrifice for you. The world doesn't need another version of a Roman Empire developed in the church language. The world doesn't need to see us uh, become someone who is going to beat them and defeat them and, and, and show them who we really are. The world needs to see the gospel in your life and they're desperate for it. Because the world is in pain, and the world is frustrated, and the world is groaning, just like us. But the difference between our pain and the world's is our pain comes with a promise. Yes, we, like Paul, can say, I have been crucified to the world. Not in a way of, of, of writing them off, but by saying, 
Everything that I could take from you, I'm not going to take from you anymore. Everything has been taken from me. I died with Christ. Everything I thought was once uh, important, I now consider it as garbage. I consider no man regarded to the flesh anymore. I've taken off my old self and put on my new self. I am dead to the world, but I am alive in Christ, and I've been promised everything. Yes, above all, we should be pitied if this isn't true. But we have been promised everything. Our hurt, unlike the world's, comes with hope. The world out there is oftentimes full of hopelessness and decay. And they're just waiting for somebody to show them a glimpse of hope. Might be a dimly lit mirror. But every time you forgive somebody, they don't deserve to be forgiven. You're showing them hope. Every time you seek redemption for a relationship that you might as well just write off, you're giving hope. Every time you disadvantage yourself to bring an advance to somebody else, stick up for the outcast, seek justice and mercy in this city. Every time you give a little blood for somebody who doesn't have one, hope is, is what's shining in your life. The hope that one day a trumpet's going to sound and that voice is going to come from heaven. It's going to say the dwelling place of God is going to be with man. And guess what? That father who's been hearing your cry this entire time is going to kneel down to you and wipe away every tear from your eye. No, it will not be easy to get to that day. But it will not be hopeless. He will heal you. He'll restore you. He'll restore us all. Until we get to that day, we have some sympathy. I'd like to leave you with what verse 26 is saying. When we are weak, because we're living out the life of the cross, it looks like foolishness to everybody else. We don't know what to say. You have a spirit groans with you. With words that cannot, it groans that cannot be expressed through words. An inarticulate groaning. He is interceding for you. The only person in your life who is able to do anything like this is a person who is extremely close to you. I'd like to invite the band back up at this time. Lead us in a time of prayer. The only thing that comes to mind when I describe this is uh, Chelsea and I a few years ago suffered a great loss. And I got a phone call from a friend who found out. And I don't think one word was spoken over the phone. This is what the Holy Spirit's ministry in your life can look like. A friend that is so close to you, that knows you can't say anything right now. And I know a lot of us are experiencing time right now of weakness. Times of frustration and pain. And in that, you have weakness, but you have a wonderful counselor. So I just want to invite you to taste and see the Holy Spirit in your life today who will continue to confirm your identity as a child of God. And he also will sit with you in your weakness, in your struggle as, as this world uh, waits for the redemption. We put on your seat a three by five card and the idea behind that is uh, to take a time here where we're not singing or praying out loud, but a time of um, 
just being quiet and praying. On that card, I want to encourage you to just write out, uh, if you have a pen or a way to do it, if not, you know, just sit and pray, to write out your prayer. Write out a word or write out a phrase or something that's heavy on your heart right now, something that you uh, want to see happen in your life and in your city. You can write on that card things like we've been talking about today, like I really need a revamp of my identity. Please tell me who I am. You can write on that card things like I, I, you know what I'm feeling right now. It's things that just are, you don't have words for it. Uh, Holy Spirit, show up in my life as this friend that's described here in 826. If there's something that's on your heart, write it on that card. And as respectfully as possible, we put some push pins in the sound panels over here. And if you want to, oh, and over here, I think, too. If you want to, just pin them up. Put them there so that uh, others can see and stand with you, with your groan and with your prayer. And pray alongside of you as well. If you're not comfortable doing that, then feel free to still write it out and just... Uh, to keep that for you and keep that for you in Holy Spirit. If you're online right now and you're not able to participate in that, then write it on the chat, write it in the comments, uh, write out your prayer. Take some time and lean into the ministry of the Holy Spirit this morning. Amen. And I'll just start off with a prayer. Sometimes uh, we just feel like there's no, there's no fruit on the fig tree and there's no grape on the vine. There's no cattle in the stalls. But where, what are we left with? Yeah, we will rejoice for you are our strength. And so in strength, come and meet us this morning. Strengthen our fragile identities, or if that's true for anyone here today. Strengthen our connection with you. If there's anybody here who's hurting or frustrated and groaning, Holy Spirit, make it very clear and evident that you are right next to him and you always have been and you always will be. The devil wants him to hear the words that if you're not saying anything, then you don't care. Teach us what you can do with just a groan. Teach us what you can do without saying anything. For those of us who are just needing this right now, who will bring a charge against the children of God? Who is our judge? We're in a time of panic, tribulation, sword, nakedness, pandemic, whatever it is. What can separate us from you? Get us to the place where uh, we are convinced, like Paul, that there is nothing that can separate us from your love. If I don't stop praying... I'll never stop. So let's take some time and pray uh, in silence.